In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. I like to think of the reading we heard from the Acts of the Apostles as the final exam for lay readers. <laughs> if you can confidently reel off Parthians, Medes, Eliamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, you get your license stamped without question. If you can do it in Armenian, you get it stamped summa cum laude. <laughs> there is, of course, a serious purpose to the passage. Take a map of the ancient Mediterranean and Mideast. Put one point of a compass on Jerusalem and the second on Rome. And the circle it describes includes all the places Luke lists. The people are gathered from every nation under heaven. There are even Parthians, that is, Persians or Iranians, and residents of Mesopotamia, modern-day Iraq, both from beyond the boundaries of the Roman Empire. At the very beginning of Acts, Luke puts before us the mission of the church to all peoples in all places across all time. The Spirit calls us forward in that mission. And in a sense, we heard the fruit of it this morning. To hear the reading in German is to be reminded of the churches of the Protestant Reformation. To hear it in Armenian is to be reminded of the ancient Orthodox churches, Oriental Orthodoxy. To hear it in Swahili is to be reminded of the missionary work over centuries and the church as it developed in Africa. To hear it in French is to be reminded of the deep history of Roman Catholicism. The people are gathered from every nation under heaven. When we're reading Acts, we may get the impression the whole world was converted in the generation of the apostles, but it wasn't that way. Acts represents, as in a single moment, something that took centuries. By the end of the first generation, churches were established in cities all around the eastern Mediterranean. That's the truth. However, Read the Two Testament letters with open eyes, and it is clear it was slow, hard work with many setbacks. Evangelism happened in shops and stalls. Church communities gathered in homes. Converts were largely drawn from people known as God-fearers, that is, Gentiles attracted to Judaism's worship of the one God and its moral standard. However, they faced real hardships when they joined the church. Any ties to Judaism were broken very quickly. Yet they were also separated from the temple worship of the Greek and Roman gods. They were different 
and ostracized. There were countless daily challenges. The only meat for sale in the marketplaces was sacrificed to the gods. Do I buy it? Do I take part in civic organizations that meet in the temples? What about my family or spouse who do not understand my new life? Let me tell you a story from a different time and place, yet one that I believe helps us to see what that first mission was like. I served St. Andrews in liberal Kansas from 1991 to 1998. Liberal was an isolated prairie town of 18,000. The church was founded in 1910. The town is not much older than that. Leading matriarchs organized services of morning prayer. We're going to get some proper religion and civilization in this town. It's pretty much the same story here, by the way. They would invite the missionary bishop to perform confirmations and baptisms. Understand that throughout the 19th century, missionary bishops served vast regions covering what are now several states. Travel often involved great hardship. There were stories of bishops sleeping in buffalo skins on the open prairies. On one of those first visits, a 10-year-old girl named Elaine Black was baptized. I met her 81 years later, then Elaine Cap, although poor Mr. Cap had long since been dismissed. Elaine worked in cities all around the country. She was an independent woman who, very frankly, knew her own mind. Came my first Sunday. The vestry had done everything possible to recruit the young priest from Connecticut. I let it all go to my head and was feeling pretty special. I led 7.30 service, locked the church, then headed home to help Betsy and the boys. I returned around 10, thinking I was in plenty of time for 10.30. Turned out there was a 9.30 coffee clatch that included Elaine. When I opened the door, she strode right past me. She was legally blind, but that never slowed her down. And said to the person next to her, but so all could hear, well, if this is the best we can expect, we'll just have to ship him back to Connecticut. <laughs> it was true. She was right. I had a lot to learn. It turned out she was, many, she was one of many who were my good teachers. Plus, in her 90s, she could say the stuff I wanted to say but couldn't. Back to the history. A stable community formed, sufficient to organize itself as a church. They moved an abandoned one-room schoolhouse into town. It still stands, now with brick veneer and stained glass windows. Hanging in the sacristy was an old picture I found very moving. It might have been from the 20s or 30s. It was sepia, like the Wizard of Oz. Some 15 members 
with a priest in cassock and surplus, stood in front of that schoolhouse on a stretch of desolate prairie, perhaps just before they moved it. That is the mission of the church. It has been so from the beginning. Our gathering this morning carries on the mission with exactly the sort of people and resources that have always been sufficient for it. It is, in truth, the mission of God in Christ for all people, although then, as now, on many days, that feels remote. The Gospel reading from John shows us both our mission and God's presence with us in the mission. The reading is taken from Jesus' farewell address in John, called the farewell address because Jesus is speaking with the disciples at the Last Supper. Yet this long passage, it's almost a quarter of the Gospel, floats free of the setting. Jesus speaks across the ages to the church in all times and places, even to the church in Fort Smith, Arkansas. We begin with this. The Father, God, is with the Son and in the Son. The works that the Son does are the works of the Father. The Father and Son are distinct, yet they are one. There is an intimate, personal, and holy trusting relationship. Then comes the astonishing thing. The one who believes in me will also do the works that I do and in fact, will do greater works than these because I am going to the Father. We do the works of God. Jesus looks past his own time to embrace the future of his people. He rejoices in our work, all of it, in its unimaginable diversity. He dwells with us and in us in that work. He is faithful. If in my name you ask me for anything, I will do it. To be clear, this does not mean that he'll answer our prayers when we play the slots if we promise to tithe our winnings. It does mean that Jesus is with us as we do the work of love, with us to bring it to fruition. Just remember, kind of like me that morning in Liberal, we have a lot to learn as we do that work. So we should not, uh, we should not despair when we experience confusion, disappointment, or even loss.
We are Jesus' hands and feet. We feel with his heart and think according to his mind. And when we do, right there is the mission of the church given on the day of Pentecost. It is, we learn next, the gift of the Holy Spirit. Jesus speaks of the Holy Spirit as our advocate or counselor. It's an image drawn from the law. Our advocate also has the job of giving us good advice. We might think of legal counsel from Ron Lawson. Many will remember this as the comforter from the King James Bible, literally the one who gives us strength. Our advocate and comforter is our teacher. I put that sentence down and I thought, okay, Jeff, so just how does the comforter teach us? It's not like he can stand in front of a classroom, right? A sentence from Isaiah came to mind. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught the work of the advocate, that I may know how to sustain with a word him that is weary. Morning by morning he wakens. He wakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. I readily remember this as it's one of those places where we hear the voice of Jesus in the prophet's words. In fact, we read it on Palm Sunday. The advocate or comforter reminds us of all that Jesus has said and done, enriches and deepens our memory. Memory. To remember is at the same time to give thanks. Remembering is the heart of our worship. Listen as we say the great thanksgiving this morning. You'll hear it. Just one sentence. Holy and gracious Father, in your infinite love, you made us for yourself. And when we had fallen into sin and become subject to evil and death, you in your mercy sent Jesus Christ, your only and eternal Son. He stretched out his arms upon the cross and offered himself in obedience to your will. Do you see what we're doing? We give thanks as we remember all God's works. Summed up in the gift of his son. David Brown, my supervisor and mentor when I was first ordained, spoke of the memory of the holy people of God. It's our memory, renewed in the Eucharist, illuminating our life. It is the gift of the Comforter. Elaine Black was baptized in 1910, age 10. It was easy to figure out her age. She died in 2003, age 103. She had a sharp tongue, but far more important, a sharp 
mind. She was a faithful and, it turned out, patient member of the church. With that sharp mind came humor, wisdom, understanding, and light. Her life is a witness to the Spirit, the Comforter, who teaches us and reminds us of all Jesus said. It is also a witness to the work of that same Holy Spirit in the mission of the church. We see that work in the women who were leaders in the town, in the bishops and clergy who served in hard and meager circumstances. To remember them all is, in a small way, to share in the memory of the holy people of God. Amen.